By the way, right before I got back on, I was distracted for a minute because I saw a mother raccoon carrying like a rat in her mouth and walking along my fence with her two babies following behind her. Oh my god. It was so nice. That's actually kind of cute. Yeah. I kind of like them. It's so it's super cute. It sucks for the yeah. rat, but like every day in nature is very complicated morally. wrong about i'm sarah marshall today we are looking for serial killers with michael hobbs my favorite person to look for serial killers with we are addressing the pressing question of whether there are fewer serial killers now than there were in what some people call the golden age of serial killers the 70s and 80s this is an interesting question to try and answer. It's kind of like how many pythons are there in the Everglades? Because it's really, really hard to count the pythons in the Everglades. So you could say, well, there's fewer now than there used to be because we're catching fewer. I don't know if that's true of pythons, but it does seem to be true of serial killers. Or you could say these pythons, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pythons. There's more than there have ever been, and they're just better hiders than they used to be. I wanted to talk about this with Mike largely because this is the topic for an article that I'm working on and will be out soon. And this has just been filling up my brain for a couple of months now. And I really wanted to bring back one of my favorite people to talk through ideas that I'm trying to figure out and understand because it was always such a wonderful part of doing the show that we got to bring our ideas and our questions to each other. And so this is me and Mike kind of going on an Everglades adventure. And we have some ideas. We are less confident in our assertions than the FBI, but we're going on an adventure and we're excited for you to come with us. And our live shows are about to happen. I can't believe it. The Portland show is coming up this Friday, the 16th. The Seattle show will be on the 18th, LA on the 20th, and San Francisco on the 22nd. I really hope you can make it. And if not, I feel like uh, unless this goes singularly horribly, we're going to do more of these is my hope. And uh, that means you'll get more chances. In the Portland and Seattle shows, I'm going to be joined on stage by Chelsea Weber-Smith, in the San Francisco and LA shows, I will be up there with Jamie Loftus, two of my favorite people in the world. And in all of the shows, Carolyn Kendrick will be there playing the most amazing music in the world. And we've got some shirts and stuff over on Tee Public. You should check them out. If you love vocal fry, if you're a sadistic switch hitter, if you are rushed, sloppy, irritated, and alive, we have designs for you. Also, this is kind of a choose your own adventure, because if you're listening to the main feed version of this episode, it's going to be about an hour long and be edited down. And if you're listening to this either on Patreon or on your Apple Plus subscription, then we have done the thing that people asked us to do for years, which is to give you a supersized version of the show that is less edited down so you can hear more of the cul-de-sacs and digressions and sort of random moments between me and Mike. And if you're subscribing to bonus episodes, thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. All right, let's go get our big butterfly nuts and catch some serial killers. 
My money don't jiggle jiggle. It folds. I like to watch you wiggle wiggle. Faux show. <laughs> Damn it. I've heard this like hundreds of times. And then it's like six foot two win a compact. <laughs> <laughs> Driving in a Fiat. You really ought to see it. Yeah. It's great. It's a Louis Theroux wrap. <laughs> just release that this week instead of a podcast. That's great. No podcast for you. Just the Louis Theroux wrap. It's just a novelty rap podcast at this point. Yeah. Okay. Would you like to do a, an intro? Let's do it. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where sometimes dad visits from the downtown hotel. Are you still living in the downtown hotel? I thought you'd gotten a, a house with a nice lady. <laughs> I didn't want to tell you about it, but uh, since you came over the other day, I guess uh, I guess the secret's out. Yeah, we love a nice lady. <laughs> we could always use another in the uh. world. Who, who are you? Are, have you been here before? I'm Michael Hobbs. I did some research before coming on. Seems like a legitimate show. Oh, yeah, you've heard of us? Yeah, it's good. We do get written about a little bit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Hobbs, you are the dad of all of our show of all of the shows. After you were on Maintenance Phase, people made it real weird with the dad and mom metaphor. I did see <laughs> a little no... bit of that. And honestly, it warmed my heart because like, that's how I see it, which I realize is ridiculous, but I do. A lot of them were real cute, but then a couple of them took it too far. And it was uh -huh. like, okay. <laughs> what were they like? Were they like, I want to sleep on a pillow made out of Michael Hobbs's bones. It was like mom and dad have like invited a third into their relationship or oh. something. And I'm just like, I... Because <laughs> we're both having sex with Aubrey. <laughs> I, we need like a new... Let's just come up with a whole new metaphor, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I see us more as sitcom parents. Oh, yeah. Than as sexual parents. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. <laughs> okay. I feel like as a pure numbers game, there's at least one person who this is their first ever episode that they've ever listened to. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? Why are these people so fucking giddy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Michael Hobbs... Who are you? Who am I? What is this show? What What is what? <laughs> we once did a podcast together for roughly three years and 130 episodes. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to a downtown hotel and you came to visit last week. And so I'm coming to visit you. Thank you for the ciabatta. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized the other day that my head is still here somehow because I'm still avoiding spoilers. Oh, yeah. Like numerous historical events that happened in the 80s and 90s. That's so nice. I'm like, don't tell me what happens in the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm waiting. Yeah. When you run into Ryan Murphy on a yacht <laughs> yeah. drinking Negronis, you're like, stay away from me, Ryan Murphy. Don't talk to me. And also don't spoil O.J. Simpson for me. But Yes. Also, don't talk to me. I'll be by the shrimp. That's how you talk. Yeah. But really, you live in Berlin, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. I've heard that it will take your breath away. And I'm posting maintenance phase with the wonderful Aubrey Gordon. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get wonderful visitors. And you always make wonderful episodes. And I'm back for what I think is an OJ episode, but I'm hearing that something may have changed. Well, yeah, here's the thing. This is like both terrible and great news in a way. So mm -hmm. to break it down, I was like, yes, I'm going to do our favorite thing, my favorite thing to do with you, which is read Paula Barbieri's memoir yes. and use that to kind of like turn the pages of time 
between the mm-hmm. runaway grand jury, which is what we ended with, mm-hmm. and the start of the trial, which happens roughly 48 years later. Yes. And then I could not find my Paula Barbieri book in my house. And like, it is truly like Paula Barbieri's memoir, like as an object in my home is like my toothbrush. I just kind of, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. always there. And I'm always kind of like, there it is. Yeah, yeah. But like, ugh, I don't know. I don't know. She's absconded. And I will find her. First, I kind of flailed around and I was like, what if I do this other OJ thing? And I was like, no, none of this is quite right. And I'm not ready to do these on the fly like this. And then I thought, Michael, what if I talk to you about the thing that I have been very focused on recently and also for all my adult life, which is serial killers who are like one of the great unspoken currents or often spoken, but rarely explicitly focused on currents running through all of You're Wrong About. Yeah, I'd love that. Yes. Hooray! I feel like if you leave Paula Barbieri's memoir under your pillow, Michael Bolton comes and gives you a dollar. (laughs) I thought you were going to say a kiss on the forehead. I was like, well, this is annoying, and I'm very sorry to listeners, but also serial killers are an okay substitute, you have to admit, and also, this means that, Michael, you have to come back soon. Yeah, anytime. Mm. And also, this is like a sort of an undercurrent of the show right? for as long as it's been going. And also, like, two weeks ago's episode, too. Exactly. Like, this is something you've returned to a lot. Yeah. It's one of the main, like, societal you're wrongs about, I feel like, that we've all kind of grown up in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I am working on an article, which I am, like, in process on. Ooh. And so I'm using this actually the way that you often did when you had a Huffington Post feature. Procrastination. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I would have described that <laughs> as you, like, using your, like, friend and trusted colleague to yeah. help <laughs> gain insight into a complicated topic. But yes, procrastination. Yes. <laughs> I also wanted to uh, steal your insights for my articles, but yes, also avoiding actually writing it. Well, yes, this is me getting to harvest your insights. Give me those sweet, <laughs> sweet insights. And so I'm going to kind of do a Carrie Bradshaw here and offer more questions than I have answers. Ooh. And Mike, some of them I think you're going to be able to help me answer in ways I never would have got to on my own. And some, I think, will both just be like, I don't know, we don't have the data. Yeah. Because I think one of the main themes of the show is the right to respond to a question with, like, I haven't formed an opinion yet, or, like, insufficient data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is your article about? The frame is the question of, are there fewer serial killers today than there used to be? Which is a hypothesis you see a lot of people making. And this brings me to Exhibit A, which is a headline, which I shall read to you. Mm. So this was in The Guardian in September 2018. And the headline is, Are American Serial Killers a Dying Breed? Okay. And I just think that's like a hilarious headline. It should have been Millennials Killed Serial Killers. Exactly. Exactly, Michael. Exactly. Something that's an undercurrent for you is millennials, Mm -hmm. because you wrote a great, big, very important Huffington Post piece on how millennials got completely screwed. Yes. I believe the word screwed was in the title. Yes. Generation screwed. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And like, right. And how we like would be accused of killing the serial killer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, younger generations now just objectively have fewer opportunities than younger generations 
in the past, and we're doing less well than our parents, and the gap in wealth between older generations and younger generations obviously has always existed, but it's much more exacerbated now, especially due to housing costs, housing wealth. And so younger people just objectively have it worse, and yet the societal discourse around young people hasn't really accepted that. It's still the same old, like, are young people spoiled and they don't want to work anymore? And it's the same sort of like panicky articles that we got about every previous generation. Mm -hmm. And they're just completely, you know, they've always been somewhat detached from reality, but they're like becoming increasingly untethered from reality now. Hmm. So I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies recently, which I really loved, except for this one scene that seemed to be being snarky about Gen Z. And I was like, hey, leave them alone. Yeah, the kids are fine. They're less ridiculous than every other generation. And also, like, if you think that they're, like, annoying, like, what do you think the consequences were for naming them in a way that would alert them to the fact that all of humanity is going to die out after them? Yeah, it's all, it's, we're ending soon. That's the last, this (laughs) is the last chapter. We've made it clear. Yeah. I mean, I do think if this show has a guiding principle, it is that in general, like, the kids are fine. Yeah. It's never the kids that are the problem. It's like 99.9% of the time, it's the adults. And we just project it all onto the kids. Yes. Okay. So that was exhibit A. And before I get deeper into that, let me show you my first visual aid. Ooh. So this is a cartoon that was in Punch magazine and I believe 1845. Okay. And it's printed in Judith Flanders's The Invention of Murder, How the Victorians Reveled in Death and Detection and Created Modern Crime, which is a very fun book, mm-hmm. obviously. Fun title. Fun book, fun title. And here is the cartoon. I don't know if you can read that. What do you see? It's a guy standing at like at a counter and there's a mm-hmm. woman holding a baby. Mm-hmm. That's about all I can see. The dude is a short king. <laughs> it's like this kid is not a newsie, but he like has the demeanor of a newsie to me, you know? Oh, he's a kid. Okay. He looks like a kid, although it would be hard to guess because there's like lions graven into his face. But I think he's supposed mm-hmm. to be a kid. Yeah, because the caption says boy. Mm -hmm. So he's at the newsagents. And there are those little placards that say what the headline is. Oh, yeah. And they say horrid murder. And then the other one says full particulars, dreadful murder, portrait of murderer. (laughs) And then the caption is the news vendor says, now, my man, what is it? And boy says, I want an illustrated newspaper with a horrid murder and a likeness in it. So there he is. Wait, I don't get it. So he's he wants to buy something that's as lurid as possible? Yeah, he says, I want an illustrated newspaper with a horrid murder and a likeness in it. Oh. He's basically like, I am a child. My needs for a newspaper, just sell me something that describes a horrid murder and has a likeness of the murderer and I'll be set. Thank you. Wow. So we had a critique <laughs> of true crime 200 years before Princess Weeks made her videos yeah she is groundbreaking in quite a few key ways so many ways but yeah the existence of criticism about true crime and the idea that people are being a little bit ghoulish in what often seems to verge on fandom is as far as i can tell as old as media basically Right. As well as criticism, the knowledge that like people want this. People like will buy your newspaper if it says horrid murder. <laughs> right. Right. On it. Which just makes sense. <laughs> Why do you say that it makes sense? What does that mean to you? To me it makes sense that we've always been interested in murder because yeah. it's just like 
isn't it just naturally a very interesting thing? Like it's scary and scary things are interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what I read recently? I was like looking up, do animals grieve? Mm -hmm. Because I know that they do, but I was like, which ones do it? And what have we observed? Mm -hmm. And I was reading about crow funerals and apparently crows gather around the corpses of their dead fellow crows to like communicate and share information about like, what the fuck happened? (laughs) to this crow no way which makes sense because they're smart and they need to survive yeah and so they're kind of like they're trying to figure it out they're getting the black box they're writing up a report (laughs) and i think that that's what we do too partly we have talked for many i would say dozens or possibly hundreds of hours about yeah let's say hundreds i think it's been hundreds about the things people do out of a sincere desire to feel that they are making themselves safer from crime, but that actually manifest as like, if someone has taped a dollar bill to your car, don't touch it because the traffickers have soaked it in PCP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always these things that seem to reinforce the same kind of meta narrative. You know, it's less intellectually challenging to watch like an episode of Law and Order mm-hmm. than it is to watch some like new HBO show with like new characters and it's going to take like four episodes to get into it. It's just sort of easier on your brain. It's like less like doing jumping jacks mentally mm-hmm. to watch something where you know exactly what the components of it are going to be. Right. I feel like we all kind of want to think that we're above doing that in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But partly some of these grisly true crime stories do sort of fulfill that purpose. And it's like, there's a bad person and he killed a bunch of innocent people Mm -hmm. and he's bad. We arrested him and he's going to pay. That's sort of like comforting the same way that you want to watch the same episode of The Office you've seen 50 times. Yeah. Sometimes when like you're home with the flu and you just like can't handle anything mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's something to that. There's just like a kind of easiness with Mm -hmm. those stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, and do you ever watch like forensic files or something? No, I I only get it through you. (laughs) I only get it through (laughs) what you described to me. So I think I have a sense of it. That makes me feel like your relationship to true crime is like my relationship to The Bachelor. I'm like, I know there's a whole world out there, but like I have other people to summarize it to me instead of watching it because those episodes are really long and I have a short attention span. All that's to say that I find it particularly hilarious when people are like, true crime is having a moment. And it's like, no, it, no, it isn't. Or like moments can be hundreds of years long. Yeah. Which yeah. if you're a rock, then yes, <laughs> that would be a moment, you know? It's, yeah. it's like everything, everywhere, all at once time. You know, okay, can I give you my like kind of try hard theory about this? Yeah. So I am fascinated by the fact that in all of like the history of of mainstream television, I don't know that there's ever been a journalist procedural. Huh. I bet there have been a bunch of ones that were on for like six episodes and then Fox was like, never mind, no one's watching it. Shut it off. I know. Whenever whenever you say this publicly, someone's like, actually, in right. 1974, there was this. And like, okay. But I mean like They're like, <laughs> what about the newsprint gang? It was epic. It was on yeah, for exactly. two weeks. And you're like, well. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sure that there have been attempts, but it's like yeah. the structure of a procedural, right? Where it's like every episode's basically the same. You have a crime, you have an investigation, yeah. you have a trial. And you could very easily do that with journalism, right? You're a reporter, you get assigned a story, you investigate the story, you publish an article, Mm -hmm. right? Like the the structure of the work actually lends itself very well to procedurals. Totally. Part of me feels like the reason we haven't had very many attempts at journalistic procedurals is because most of the stories would be about 
accountability for people in power, mm-hmm. right? Your your stories that you're investigating would be like municipal corruption or somebody who's like a serial sexual harasser who's like the mayor or something like that, right? It would be those kinds of stories that tell like a more difficult story to digest. Mm-hmm. Whereas all these true crime procedurals tell a story that is extremely easy to digest, which is like there's bad people out there, they're committing crime against innocents, and like those people go to jail. Right. And like that's why we've gotten so many of those and not the other way around. Well, yeah. And also what that makes me think of is the fact that I've long kind of thought that law and order actually functions as if it's about journalism because Mm. it's like, oh, my God, a crime has committed. And then like the crime is always like interesting in some way. Right. Because, you know, in reality, murder is fairly boring. It happens for the same reasons. It's like, yeah, someone was committing armed robbery and then things got escalated. Like that happens so often. And it's like there's nothing. Like, it's interesting in that you're like, these people are interesting. Their lives are interesting. Why did they do this? What are their circumstances? Like, every human being is interesting. But in terms of, like, a murder where you're like, oh, my God, the mayor's daughter was caught on the security cameras. What, you know, that doesn't happen as often as Law & Order behaves as if it does. And then, like, the cops get to be like, oh, my goodness, this murder was committed in the intriguing new world of IVF. Let's interview a bunch of people. (laughs) This is a real episode I'm thinking of. And they're like, we have to, like, learn how to understand IVF and the science behind it if we're going to understand this murder. That's perfect. (laughs) And because they're TV cops, they're, like, fairly cordial as they interview people a lot of the time. And they're like, tell me more about your interesting job that you're doing while you talk to me, of course. (laughs) <laughs> and somebody reads out of the like Wikipedia entry that the screenwriters looked up while they were writing the episode. <laughs> so what was the case for There's No Serial Killers and the case against There's No Serial Killers anymore? So I am now going to bring in Exhibit C. Okay. And I'm going to put a picture in the chat and you're going to read it to us. Okay. Okay, so it's a news article that looks like it's from, I guess, the 80s or something. It looks old. Oh, look at the kerning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is it is from June 1985. This is from the Anniston Star in Anniston, Alabama. I referenced this in the Henry Lee Lucas episode. Oh, yeah. The headline is Serial Murders Clearly on the Rise. I love that. And it's by Bob Benson. And it's labeled a comment. So I guess it's like an op-ed or a take of some kind. Which is really funny because he's like, it is my opinion that statistically this is happening. (laughs) (laughs) This fact is true. Comment. Yeah. Can you read until it says Ted Bundy? (laughs) Okay. It says, he is young, smart, charming, charismatic, described by friends as concerned and caring. These characteristics portray America's deadliest criminal, the serial murderer. Crimes of Jack the Ripper, whose victims numbered not more than seven, pale in comparison with those of most contemporary serial killers. Albert Fish murdered and cannibalized more than 200 boys and girls in New York. Ted Bundy slaughtered 365 young women in six states. Possibly slaughtered, it says, I will point out, which is a very interesting caveat. Ted Bundy possibly slaughtered 365 young women in six states. The apprehension of serial killers occurs almost by accident rather than by design. Most local law enforcement professionals are baffled by the lack of motivation and the dearth of evidence in homicides committed by these human predators. The serial killer acts neither out of passion nor premeditation. 
As with the Boston Strangler, personal gain is almost never a consideration. Interviews with convicted serial murderers indicate they are usually sociopathic. They kill without remorse. Serial murders are clearly on the rise. An estimated 5,000 people, three times as many as two decades ago, fall victim to the serial killer each year. Mm -hmm. Between 1960 and 1982, the solution rate for homicides declined from over 90% to approximately 76%. The number of motiveless homicides have increased from 6% in 1966 to about 20% today. Just as frightening as the rise in serial murders is the apparent lack of awareness by most people of their vulnerability. Serial murders take advantage of this. They possess a sixth sense about which victims are good targets. That was great. This is a fascinating artifact. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's all there, right? It's all there, baby! Yeah. <laughs> it's like a manifesto of like why you should be afraid of... Stranger danger, basically. You know, serial killers, they kill without warning. They kill without remorse. They're these masterminds. They don't even really have a motivation. They're sort of these inhuman killers. And the number of crimes is increasing. And the police are incapable of solving it because I guess they're so, like, cunning or something. Yes. So it's just like, yeah, be scared. It's bad out there, essentially. Right, which we've talked about before is something that really emerges in the Reagan 80s. It's part of Reagan's policy, and yeah. we started to see it under Nixon as our first law and order president, and are seeing, you know, this shifting of our carceral system away from things like furloughs and work release programs. Yeah. And these kind of economically pragmatic approaches that are like, yeah, you know, sometimes if you have someone out, on work release, like they might escape or they might reoffend or even commit a worse crime than what they're in for. But it's a good program and it makes sense. So we're not going to end it just because of something like that happening, which was an argument made by right. Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the serial killer, for one thing, was so useful toward this culture in the 80s that was like, listen, Americans, you're being dupes. You are not being careful enough. And none of you are thinking about serial killers. Everyone needs to think about serial right. killers more. Yeah. <laughs> and also, have you looked into the numbers in this at all? I mean, did Ted Bundy really kill 365 people? Mike, I wrote a whole article about how Ted Bundy almost certainly didn't kill 365 people. For one thing, because right. it's really hard to kill that many people. Didn't he kill like six people or something? It's no, like Ted Bundy, I love how you're like negging Ted Bundy based on his low numbers. Ted Bundy did, I think our, our, our confirmed number of women and girls that he actually murdered is somewhere in the 30s. I'm unsure of the exact number, but like he did kill okay. a lot of people. Like he confessed to a yeah. lot of murders. But the interesting thing about that, and I wrote about this in an article for The Believer that came out in 2018, is that there were kind of two forces at play there, I think, um, even after he confessed, which he only did when he was like hours away from execution, which was A, that people were like, snooze what if he killed more people than that what if he killed hundreds what if he killed everybody right and then law enforcement agencies from all these different jurisdictions like had him available as someone who could be the culprit in an unsolved murder that was haunting the community or you know 
that it would be great to be able to close for all the reasons that you try and close these cases. So they just threw it on. It must have been Bundy. We can't solve this like random person who's from a subgroup of the population who we don't really care that much about and don't want to get to know. So uh, Bundy probably got him. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Ted Bundy was that, you know, typically the victims that he did kill were like middle class because that was how his taste ran. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much about shunting the deaths of sex workers onto him, although... I'm sure that that happened as well. But it was it's like, I think it's because there's so many reasons why it makes sense to drive his numbers up. Right. And to be like, what if he killed like 10 times as many people as he actually admitted to? Right. As opposed to speaking euphemistically about some theoretical serial killer, which he did with law enforcement for years when he was like, I'm not a serial killer, of course, but here's what a serial killer could have done. And sometimes it seemed like he was just directly talking about himself in third person. And sometimes it was like, are, are you, what are you doing? Is it about you or is it about, because it was all hypothetical is the thing. If I did it. Yeah, the original. The original if I did it. Yeah. <laughs> and so these random guesses that people made over the years about how many people he might have killed, I think are made in the spirit of like, there's all these unsolved murders. Our solve rate is down to 76% which is very low compared to what it used to be. And as Rachel Monroe pointed out, when she came on and talked about Henry Lee Lucas, our solve rate is like, I think like 61% now for murders. Yeah. It's much lower than that. And we're not mm -hmm. freaking out about it. We're just like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is relevant. Because I suspect that today, to jump ahead and to sort of like millennials killed the serial killer, that maybe there's an illusion of a higher solve rate because we all live in a surveillance state. Right. For some reason, like the people tasked with solving the murders are somehow not given responsibility for the falling solve rate, which is just very weird. It's like uh -huh. the IRS is catching fewer tax cheats these days. Wouldn't you be like, oh, well, the IRS needs to like be better at this. Yeah. On this, we're like, oh, <laughs> it's just because all of the criminals are sociopaths now. Yes. There's no real explanation for why that would be the case, why there'd be more sociopaths now than there were in, you know, 1940 or whatever. But it's just like, oh, they're sociopaths now. And like the cops, try as they might, are powerless to stop them. Like, are they? <laughs> yes. Our good friend of the show, Candace Opper, said to me recently, she was like, I feel like the thesis of everything you've done is, is it? <laughs> These are some of the most important questions that we can ask about history and sociology and everything else. Have you ever looked into this thing of an estimated 5,000 people fall victims to serial killers each year? That seems... Yes. Well, what Rachel talked about this as well. And what she pointed out was that this was actually something... Very similar to what we've talked about on this show before, which is the number attached to the figure of missing children who have been abducted. Right. What happened with that? Well, I mean, 99% of them come back. It's like people that were reported to be abducted. But most people that are reported to be abducted, it's like they got in a fight with their parents. They ran down to Fred Meyer and they wander home like three hours later. Right. It's not the number of kids that we can't find. It's just the number of kids who were reported for some period of time that their parents didn't know where they were. Or also like non-custodial parent kidnapping, right? Or like a right. parent doesn't bring their child over for, you know, a scheduled uh, handover. Right. DC snipers. Yeah, you just take the kids. Right, yeah. which sometimes escalates into stealing the kids and going to another country. But 
often doesn't. But the point is also yeah. that it's not a stranger abduction, which is what that statistic is claiming to represent and what people are being asked to picture. Right. Yeah. So this is the same thing where it's like 5,000 is the figure of murders where the cause isn't understood. Oh. Right. Where you're not able to be like, oh, her husband murdered her. You're like, oh, someone murdered her. So it it's a serial killer. And it's like, as we've just right. discussed, you have to go, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So basically, it's like anyone who the police can't figure out who they are or why they did what they did is a serial killer. And the idea that just like they are everywhere. And if we don't have specific evidence of them, that is also evidence of them. There's something we can't explain. So it must have been a serial killer, right? It's this like kind of conspiratorial thinking pattern. Yeah. And as you've pointed out, it also lets the police off the hook because whether you think the police need to be defunded because they shouldn't exist and they've never been useful, or if you think they should get a ton of money and resources and be able to like somehow deal with what they're being asked to deal with, in either of those cases, whether you think either of those two things, you're wrong. Because the police are operating at peak police. They're as good as they can possibly be. But the serial killers are sociopathic geniuses. Right. And they're to blame for the solve rate being down. Right. So it's awfully convenient, really. Again, it's about power, right? It's about the institutions of power and which groups of people don't have power. Well, and also then all the statistics are a little bit wonky in this and not wonky in the good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have, as examples of modern serial killers, Ted Bundy possibly slaughtered 365 young women in six states, which, by the way, I do think that it's disrespectful to the people who actually died to have their deaths be part of like this total that a bunch of random men are trying to argue for being like unimpressively low and it needs to be right. higher. <laughs> Right. I do think there's also a little bit of an arms race quality to all this where like Americans like we want to have the worst serial killers. That's a theory yeah, I yeah, have yeah. about us. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as we have now with like the mass shootings. It's like the only way to get attention to this as an issue is when they're like really grisly. Right. It's like, oh, That's you got to get point. your numbers up because like, you know, Columbine sized mass shootings don't make headlines anymore. You know, to get in the newspaper, you now have to kill like 150 fucking people at a time, which is so fucking grim. But otherwise, literally, it's so routine at this point that like, yeah, we're not going to pay attention. So he's murdered 365 women. Like, yeah, that's more exceptional than murdering 30 women. Like, you know, the gymnastics team. Yeah. In this projected reality, because I don't think serial killers are like this. Right. I think one of the Just... most interesting things about this whole thing is that people like Bob over here are really invested in this narrative of like serial killers doing it for the media to some extent, like being invested in like upsetting the public and terrorizing us. And it's like some of them are like some of them are very articulate about that, but a lot of them just seem to be driven by mm. horrible compulsions and kind of indifferent to everybody but themselves, which is sort of the point. <laughs> <laughs> so then his other example of a modern serial killer is Albert Fish, who I don't know if that statistic is correct or reliable. I haven't researched him ever, really. But he was active in the 1920s and the early 1930s. So like, mm, I don't know, Bob. Yeah, that just isn't like a relevant example for this, basically. Right. And just like, I don't know, any argument where you're like implying that like being a serial killer below a certain numerical threshold is like unimpressive. 
Like, I right. think that's dangerous rhetoric to be putting out in the world. Right. It's also, I mean, that number of serial killers kill an estimated 5,000 people sounds too high, but it also in some ways sounds too low, considering how many homicides there are in the United States every year. Mm-hmm. Because the question is like, okay, well, why should I care about this murder as opposed to other types of murder? Because we all know you're the most likely to be killed by somebody you know. So is 5,000 murders a lot compared to the total number of murders? Like it's just a meaningless number without a denominator. Right. Well, here's a statistic because the murder rate in America is a very interesting topic, obviously. Mm -hmm. For a long time, it was falling. It fell for about 30 years, Mm -hmm. like steadily. And then we had an uptick. In recent years, we have seen upticks in murder and another crime. In 2020, according to the FBI, there were 21,570 murders, which is a 4,961 murder increase over 2019, Mm -hmm. and 77% of them were committed by gun. Right. So, I mean, something that immediately occurs to me reading that statistic is that serial killers take the pressure off of guns because it's comparatively very rare for the public to become fixated on a serial killer who uses a gun as a primary weapon. Focusing on serial killers also, it's like you're focusing on the hard thing rather than the easy thing, Mm. right? Because restricting guns is like something that kind of tangible that you can do. Whereas like, we got to get the sociopaths. No, Mike, it's impossible. (laughs) It does seem to me that like restricting gun access is rendered impossible effectively at this point by how much of a chokehold like the gun lobbies and everybody like have on government in the US. So like, yes, it has been made impossible, but like in a theoretical world, it would be a very pot. Like in Australia, they did it in about 20 minutes. Yeah. And then you compare that to there's too many sociopaths in the population. Yeah. Okay. I I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. (laughs) Like what? There's some kinds of people who just suck, but like, I guess we should lock them up because they have a propensity to kill people like that. Right. Seems bad. There's no implied solution to the problem that he's talking about other than This kind of individual stay inside your home, don't talk to strangers kind of approach, which is like, okay, but again, that's not really solving like what is fundamentally like a public problem. Well, and I'm curious, that makes me think about the fact that you are living outside of the United States and you are an American and you are watching the United States from far away. And just I wonder if that has like created any new insights for you and just thinking about like what our problems are and like why we're so fucked. Yeah. (laughs) Or why we seem so fucked. I think there's a lot of hope, but we got to we got to grab for the right stuff, you guys. I mean, I think the biggest thing to miss is just how boring politics is Mm -hmm. in like quietly functioning countries. Mm, That sounds (laughs) nice. You don't really follow it. And like, obviously, politics really matters everywhere. But it's like you can kind of check out in Germany and just not pay attention for a couple weeks. Yeah, good old Germany where you can just be like, I'm sure everything's in good hands. It's fine. Like how the turntables, if you will. Right. And then you kind of check back in and you're like, oh, they passed this thing. And like this thing got you know delayed and like that sucks, but it's still on the agenda and it's still probably going to happen. How have you been holding up with all the chaos? (laughs) Great question. I mean, (laughs) I feel like I'm focusing on serial killers as a way to actually do what a lot of people do with serial killer media, which is to be like, stop talking to me about all the horrible things that are leading to the like, 
<sighs> intense sickening of democracy all around me. Like, show me the scary guy. <laughs> show me one scary guy. He's going to be really scary, yeah. but there's going to be one of him. <laughs> right. You know, and I think that's a really important function of these stories, too. Like, life is fucking scary. Yeah. And if you think about, like, the Victorian interest in true crime, it's like, of course you want to read about a horrid murder when the people you love are dying all around you. It makes complete sense. Right. Like, the thing that occurs to me, and then I guess I'm wondering if you see in this also, is how the story of the serial killer is one that played in concert with other stories, but all the sort of, like, tough on crime, don't trust anybody, everyone's trying to kill you stories that I think helped sell us on making prison so much more to use the technical term evil than it was before right. the 80s and how the golden age of the serial right. killer really created the golden age of incarceration. And then quietly after the fact, the FBI recently was like, we actually think that about 1% of murders are committed by serial killers. Oh, yeah. And that there are maybe like 25 to 50 of them. So if you take 1% of 21,000 murders in 2020, then you get 200 murders. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like a lot of murders. And again, it's like we've made it so that it's like hard to even pay attention to a real problem because right. we've invented a giant made up problem, which as you and I have talked about in many other episodes is like an American pastime. Right. Well, do you think that there's fewer serial killers now? Like, are there any actual like numbers or any evidence on this? I mean, what we have is this like adjusted number. That was like this inflated statistic that people trusted in the 80s and that mm -hmm. we have now scaled back to something realistic. So it's like the data has possibly not changed. Our ability to assess it has changed. And then there are still mm. a lot of people who are like, listen, there's tons of serial killers out there. There are people who are arguing that there are like 1,000 to 2,000 serial killers active. And it's like, well, God, they must be exercising great restraint. Yeah. Is all I can say. <laughs> Either that or they're like fucking geniuses. And like nobody is suspecting a thing across tens of thousands of murders. They're too busy driving for Uber. Everybody's stretched thin these days. But then wouldn't they be easier to catch if they're so tired <laughs> all the time? <laughs> like the rest of us? <laughs> I mean, oh, I see what you're saying, right? They're too busy driving for Uber to commit murder. I mean... Yeah. Now I'm just going to do my Carrie Bradshaw section and ask a bunch of questions for which I have no answers. Okay, something I thought for a long time was that millennials are being accused of killing the serial killer because as with every other thing millennials have been accused of killing, we just can't afford it. Right. We might like to do it, but we can't. <laughs> it costs too much. Mm -hmm. I would often say that, like, to be a serial killer, it really helps to have real estate. Oh, yeah, because, like, hiding the bodies and cutting people up and stuff? Yeah. It's just, like, you need some kind of a place to do that. And yet, also, there's plenty of serial mm -hmm. killers who, like, you know, Ted Bundy lived in a boarding house and Ed Kemper lived with his mom until he killed her. Mm -hmm. We often actually have serial killers who, like, drive around and commit their crimes out there. Mm. And so something that that makes me wonder about is our solve rate is lower than it ever was or at least lower than it was in a time when we imagined America to be crawling with serial killers all the time. Yeah. But is it just difficult for the kinds of serial killers that we're interested in to operate today? Because if you look at somebody like Ted Bundy or Ed Kemper, they were murdering like, quote unquote, nice, clean cut, middle class, white, co-ed 
girls, like girls, specifically right. girls right. who had affiliations with college campuses. Right. And that was part of why it was so huge in the news and why it was so shocking. And also, I think why it became such a potent part of this kind of national conversation we were all having and feeling about like women entering the world and entering the workforce and entering higher ed and unprecedented right. numbers and having all these new freedoms. And it almost feels to me like the serial killers we focused on, those stories became part of the backlash against women and girls entering the world in the way that they had. Because like Ed Kemper and people like him like murder some young women who are hitchhiking and who he picks up because they're hitchhiking. And within 10 years, hitchhiking effectively dies out as a mode of transportation. Ginger Strand writes about this in a book called Killer on the Road, which you would love because it's yeah. like serial killers are bad, but cars are worse. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, women are killed by their husbands or their male romantic partners all the time. And yet we continue to get married. So I don't know. <laughs> well, do you think the serial killer thing and the, you know, the Kemper Bundy co-ed stuff, do you think that's partly like, well, you know, we, we tried to warn you about like women taking a more prominent role in society. And like, of course, this happened. Like, do you think that was under the surface? I do. I think for, for some people, for like probably a lot of men and also women. Mm -hmm. looking on it was i do think that there are probably like plenty of serial killers at large like i don't think there's thousands of them mm -hmm. but i think there's probably like at least a few dozen like that makes total sense right it's a big country sure and i do think the kind the technologies we have available specifically of surveillance like probably make it harder yeah to murder a string of people who law enforcement takes seriously the disappearance of which at, at this point and throughout time tends to be middle-class white women. I mean, there's been a few cases in Europe of serial killers targeting refugees and immigrants. Yeah. The discourse around those has not been the sort of sexy true crime kind of discourse. It's oftentimes they're seen, they're, they're sort of meticulously cast as isolated incidents. That's interesting. Until it becomes really too obvious to ignore. There's also the thing of, like, where do you find patterns right. and where do you, like, refuse to see it? Uh, a co-ed disappeared, then a, a week later, another co-ed disappeared. Right. People probably start connecting those dots faster than, like, oh, a, a poor Afghan refugee was killed in the street and then another Afghan refugee and then a Somali refugee. People won't necessarily see those as part of the same things. They're like, eh, right. you know, they're refugees, they're poor, like, this happens, Right. But it's like, where are you finding the patterns? And the, the faster you find the patterns, you know what you're actually looking for. Right, right. And this question of who you expect society to keep safe or right. whose life you consider permissibly dangerous, right? Because right? the whole construct we run into constantly here with serial killers is that like sex workers should expect to be murdered. And it's like, when did, what? <laughs> right. Who signed off on that? <laughs> Right. And to that, I would like to turn to Jack the Ripper. Ooh, okay. So we're going to head back to 1888. And I would actually just love to hear your impressions of Jack the Ripper as like a not terribly crimey person, but someone who obviously understands culture, which I think Jack the Ripper has like transcended crimey culture and is just part of like all culture. All I know is from whatever I read in uh, that Alan Moore book from hell when I was like 13 or something. Oh, yes. 
It was a very educational book. It opens with a hand job, as I recall. Yeah, I, I loved that book. But I, I, I don't remember a lot of the details. I know that it was 1888 in Whitechapel, and it was mostly sex workers. But like, that's basically where my knowledge stops, because I've been saving it. That's very good recall. And what is Whitechapel like today? Do you know? I mean, it's like post-gentrification, like cool now. Do they have like a bunch of like blue bottle coffee franchises? Yeah, the last time I was there, there was a um, a, a high-end breakfast cereal place. Really? You could get like artisanal breakfast cereal for like 12 pounds. That's like all I know about the current Whitechapel, but that was years ago. Somehow that feels... More disrespectful to Jack the Ripper's victims than anything else I've encountered. (laughs) 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 But what do you know about Jack the Ripper? Like, do you have any impressions of his sort of deal? (laughs) I honestly don't. I know that it's an enduring mystery who it actually was. Mm -hmm. I've really been avoiding it. I've, I've, whatever the book was, everybody said it was really good, but I just, I've been waiting for you to tell me all about it. Ah, it is really good. And we're just going to talk about it a little. So it's The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. Mm -hmm. The argument that she makes very early on is basically of the, quote, canonical five victims whose deaths have been assigned to Jack the Ripper, although there's quite a lot of debate about that. It appears that there's solid evidence that three of them were engaging in sex work. The other two, there's nothing to indicate that. And yet... The media story at the time was very fixated on the idea that essentially they had attracted the murderer by being sex workers. Oh. And what Hallie Rubenhold argues is what appears to be the case is that all of these women, the finding at the time was that they had been murdered while in a reclining position. No one had heard a scream. No one had heard any sound. One of the victims was killed like on the street underneath the window of a light sleeper who did not hear a thing. Okay. All of which indicates... Again, according to Hallie Rubenhold, that Jack the Ripper struck while they were sleeping. Okay. Which to me is is so, like, really does change everything because he didn't give a shit really who they were or what they were doing, aside from the fact that they were women and they were accessible to him because they were out on the street for the most part. Right. To me, the idea that the murder was connected to sexuality feels like it's one of the things that makes Jack the Ripper the first modern serial killer, which is what people just kind of accept him to be. Hmm. And the other thing is media engagement. Yeah, so basically it was a sensation at the time. It was a sensation at the time. It was very thick competition between newspapers, of which there were one million. Mm. So Jack the Ripper was fantastic business. And Hmm. what also happened was that there were hundreds and hundreds of letters sent to the police to newspapers from God knows where, from people claiming to be Jack the Ripper. There were in excess of a thousand of these letters. And some of them became very famous and were evaluated as potentially credible. And three of these are the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. Oh. Which is where the Alan Moore book gets its title. Right. So what did they say? So the Dear Boss letter was received by the Central News Agency in September 1888. And multiple people over the years have hypothesized that this was written by a journalist. Okay. So the call was coming from inside the house. And the attempt was basically to like drum up coverage for the newspapers by creating news. Hmm. 25 September 1888. 
Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on sex workers, he doesn't say sex workers, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was, I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha, ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep the letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. <laughs> huh. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. What does that say to you? What does it say to you? <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of convincingly disturbing and disturbed. Like it's it's a little bit disjointed. Yeah. It's funny because all of these things have become such tropes now of like the serial killer that writes to the newspapers and stuff. And right. they're sort of like the almost Joker-ish intonation of like making jokes as you're saying these horrifying things about like the red ink on my hands or whatever. So it's like, I don't know if those tropes even existed at the time, but it's very like trope dense. Yeah. I feel like tropes about the murderer and the newspaper must have existed to some extent in cultural mm. artifacts we forgot about now because there were plenty of murderers and plenty of newspapers <laughs> throughout the 1800s. Right. But it feels to me like this is really what sets the tone for the serial killers that we find interesting. Then jumping ahead to David Berkowitz, who killed a paltry six people. Oh, no. Get those numbers up, Dave. I think that one of the reasons that that crime that you know that series of crimes became as huge as it was was it was the first serial killer to operate in new york as far as anyone noticed since the 1930s mm. and he wrote letters he wrote a letter to jimmy breslin he interacted with the media right. and also the new york daily news and the new york post which rupert murdoch had just purchased <laughs> were having a circulation war right so we need a main character basically and a storyline. This is what you're right. This is what we're asking, really. It's like, where have all the serial killers with main character energy gone? Yeah, yeah. Where are they? <laughs> I guess, really, that's what I think is going on, is that one of the questions we have is, where have all the main character serial killers gone? Right. And how that connects with mass shooting, I'm still trying to figure out. Like, more statistics and more possibly reliable st statistics, I'm still trying to find like i'm kind of mid process with this but right that's one of my theories what do you think well i feel like with crime especially crime is so socially constructed right that your sense of how much crime is taking place in your area is almost entirely dependent on the media and like maybe a friend of yours got their car broken into or something like that, right? Like, yeah, and next door. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There was just an analysis of this in the UK that attitudes about immigration, like how big of a crisis is immigration in the UK, do not track immigration levels whatsoever. They track news coverage of immigration, 
right? Of like an immigrant killed his whole family, da, da, da. Right. Most people do not have any idea how many immigrants arrived last year to the country, whatever country they live in. And most people do not have any idea how many murders there were in their city last year. What we know is like, well, there's just a lot of stories in the media and like, oh my, you know, something bad happened to my friend or like something was sketchy or, oh, I felt unsafe somewhere. It's super anecdotal and super kind of given to you, right? That if, if, if journalists want to make you think that we're in the middle of a crime wave, that's really easy. All they have to do is make anecdotes about crimes more prominent in the newspaper, right? We're all going to think that we're in the middle mm -hmm. of some kind of like unprecedented crime wave, which arguably is what happened over the last year, right? There was a lot of media coverage of ultimately a relatively small uptick in mm -hmm. crime, right? Mm -hmm. And so for all of these things, it's like the, you know, have serial killers disappeared? It's almost irrelevant whether serial killings mm -hmm. have disappeared. It's almost entirely a story of media coverage. Mm. Yeah, there's thousands of murders every year, and you can turn almost any of them into national frenzies if you want to, right? If you dedicate enough attention. Or at least a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, most of them have. I agree with you mostly, but I also think that, like, Americans, that we actually have, like, fairly specific requirements in terms of the murders we want to hear about. Right. And it's actually, like, kind of hard to please us. Like, I feel like we're, like, somebody <laughs> who, like, rolls up to a restaurant and is like, just surprise me. And then the chef like gives you something and you're like, no. And then it turns out that what you wanted was panna cotta. And it's like, well, you could just ask for panna cotta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're like, yeah. no, I guess I love stories about murder. And it's like, okay, what about the like 7,000th story this year of like an argument escalating? Right, right. <laughs> and it's like, no, no. What about like the girl who had everything going for her, but then she only like, said goodbye to her boyfriend at the entrance to her gated community and it was only 900 feet right. to her driveway and somehow she vanished. It's like, okay, so panna cotta. Right. <laughs> I mean, e even the definition of serial killer, right? I assume it's like two or three people who are unknown to the killer. Yeah, I believe the FBI requirement is for three people that you don't know on different occasions with cooling off periods in between. Okay. Like you said, there must still be those people. But we're just like three. Yeah. F forget three. <laughs> Who know. even can I think that probably our standards are too high. Right. It's like dating. It's like when you're like, why are there no single guys in <laughs> Portland? And it's like, there are literally tens of thousands of them. You just hate everything yeah, about yeah. most of them. That's <laughs> the reason. It feels like there aren't any. <laughs> My friend said that. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is, like, stories of serial killers still resonate, obviously, because people are still fucking retelling the stories of the same goddamn, like, 12 serial killers in American history on various, like, documentaries and podcasts. Including this one. Yeah. yeah. And yet, contemporary serial killers were not seeing those stories as much. I assume that they still happen. Yeah, of course. I think it's just it's all a matter of, like, what's a local story versus what's a national story. Right. I wouldn't like confidently make this argument, but I wonder if we're actually afraid of serial killers anymore. Mm. Like, I think possibly they seem to us kind of like lions, where if you see a lion at a zoo, you're like, oh, right. I've seen lots of depictions of this. I'm familiar with it. I don't really like it feels like something sort of caged. Like if we right. frame it that way, like maybe it actually feels like the world is safe. We catch all the big, scary guys now, or they're just gone or whatever. Maybe white women are less likely to be killed by strangers and everyone else is just 
getting murdered as often as before. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, step step it up out there, serial killers. You got to produce good content. So that's your. <laughs> so that's the moral, you guys, is that if you're a serial killer, you have to be on TikTok every day. <laughs> <laughs> the key is consistency. And again, like this is sort of I'm just guessing randomly, mm-hmm. like FBI agents do. <laughs> but I would say that generally. Our sense of what's happening crime-wise and what the numbers are and how much of which type of crime is happening out there in the world tends to be very disconnected and like an entirely different story from what's actually happening out there because we live in the world and we also live in this world of our own creation about what we believe we should be most worried about and most protecting ourselves against. Right. And yeah, I mean, speaking of kind of other things that have changed nationally in the last few years, like I know that this is obvious, but we're like living in a time of like the rise of fascism in the United States and like fairly unchecked white supremacy and queer people being accused of grooming wantonly, which like as someone who has read a couple books about the satanic panic reminds me of something. Yeah. I mean, so maybe our feeling that serial killers like aren't, the thing we should most be afraid of right now, like maybe that sometimes at least reflects the fact that we understand that the thing we need to fear is all around us and very visible and talking to us on TV. Right. (sighs) Mike, do you feel like your questions have been answered? Yeah. It's like a very Sarah Marshall joint in that it's like, it's complicated. <laughs> like, it depends on how you look at yes. it. It's like, you're, I, I don't think the headline of your article is going to be like, serial murder is clearly on the fall or something. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not what I expect from Sarah Marshall. Nah, I'm really, I'm happy to have delivered. And yeah, I guess my question that I offer is, is it? <laughs> Thank uh, you for coming over. Anytime. <laughs> Happy to come out of my little hotel into the sunlight. It's nice. <laughs> Back to mom. Oh, wait, it's going to get weird. All right, never mind. Yeah, let's, let's, just, let's, let's let it go. Good, goodbye, metaphor. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> By the way, a couple of corrections. The homicide clearance rate or solve rate, which refers to the number of homicides where someone is arrested and formally charged was 61% in 2019, but it actually was 54% in 2020. Not great, Bob. Also, I gave an outdated definition of the serial killer. The FBI standardized their definition of serial killer in 2005, and therefore the rest of ours, at their San Antonio Serial Murder Symposium which was held at the Sheraton, which I just find funny that like, I don't know, you have to have your serial killer conference somewhere and I'm sure the Sheraton is very nice. So the current definition of a serial killer is quote, the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender or offenders in separate events, which doesn't mean that the victims have to be strangers and it honestly kind of seems like a participation trophy, but That's the definition today. Thank you so much to Michael Hobbs, my co-host emeritus. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing. And thank you always to you, the listeners. See you in two weeks. Or sooner if you're coming to a live show. (laughs) 